The way we take care of ourselves is ever evolving. And what we know for sure is that our mind and spirit are linked to our physical body and that our wellness seems to extend into our communities and the planet we all share. It is very, very clear that wellness is interconnected. We love spending time with you to explore and practice the breakthroughs, the insights, and the passions of incredible people helping us all see the world in a whole new light. This is HealthGig. Today's guest is Dale Haddon, and we are so thrilled to have Dale with us today on HealthGig. Dale is a Canadian model and actress, and she is presently known for promoting anti-aging products, and she talks a lot about what beauty means inside and out. Dora and I were thrilled to have Dale with us today because we also talked about something that was very interesting, and that is her initiative called Women One. So you're going to learn a lot more about Dale in the next few minutes. Welcome, Dale. Thanks for joining us. Trisha and I are so excited that you're our guest today, and we know all about you, and we just are looking forward to our listeners to hear about your extraordinary life and all the good things you're doing in the world. But we want to begin, if you could just tell us a little bit about yourself, where you grew up, and your family. And thank you so much for having me on. I'm, I'm always touched when people are interested. Sometimes you're working in a silo. So it's so nice when people outside, and especially through someone like my dear friend, Deborah, who we sealed our friendship in Saudi Arabia, which is really funny. Wow. We were invited together to the Nobel Laureate conference that was there before COVID. So that was early on, 2019, I think it was, in Alula, which had not been really developed at yes. that time. So it was super exciting and it bonded us. So thank you, Deborah. You thank know. you, Deborah. <laughs> Trisha and I have been to Alula. I just want to throw that yeah. out there. We can talk about it later, but okay, we want to hear about it. Well, I grew first. up in Canada. I'm Canadian. <laughs> you know, just very clean, you know, in a clean way, you know, seasonal, you know, when it was winter, it was winter, school closed down once a week, that kind of thing. You cooked over a fireplace, very old fashioned, you know, like when there was the maple sugar, you know, runoff in the spring, you'd climb into a horse driven cart, jump in the back and go deep into the woods. And they would make in Canadian pea soup hot in a big kettle. And then the hot syrup. I don't know if you know this tradition, but it's very Canadian. You hold a tray, the kids hold a tray, they pack down nice, clean, white ice, and then you pour boiling hot maple syrup over it, stick, and you wind Ooh. it. And it's like it wraps around the stick and then you eat that. Very old fashioned, very safe, very beautiful, very natural. We didn't have a lot of mm. means, but I had, my parents came from the war, World War II. My mother was British. And so everything was traditional. Everything was not fancy. You know, just simple, in a simple, clean way, and lovely, lovely memories of my childhood. So it just so happened that I would love music. My mother loved classical music, so I loved it. Out of all the children, I loved it the most. And in a way, when I look back, for me, I think I visualized music. It was visual for me. So when the music was playing, I could see shapes. And what I would do is kind of follow the shapes and follow the movement that I visually saw. And then they looked at me and they said, well, maybe she should go into ballet. So at five years old, I started ballet. I did a, a wow. British method where an examiner comes in from England and they examine you every year, you know, so it's very strict. And then when I was 13, I joined the Canadian Ballet Company 
So I did all the small roles. Wow. And it was Russian teachers. They were much, much harder. It was almost like being raised in the military, extremely disciplined. That's what it gave me, a discipline for everything I did after that. I did a lot of dance with the Kirov when they were there. Small parts again, created a lot of near disasters. (laughs) You know, where things that happened where I almost knocked over the leading, you know, because you're you're one of the little reindeer or the mice. Then you knocked over the leading ballerina. The Russians were chasing after me. Get that girl. Uh, So I have a lot of funny stories about it. But it was a great childhood, wonderful parents, fun with my siblings. But I was the only one that wanted to leave the country and go on and do other things. Because we didn't have a lot of means to pay for my dance classes, I always was thinking of ways to make money and creating like little puppet shows that I would hire everybody to, not hire, I mean, invite everybody to come to, things like that. And I just thought without telling anybody that maybe I could do modeling because I kind of knew how to move. So maybe I could, not thinking anyone would take me. So I never told anybody. And I went into the big city, Montreal at the time, because I lived in the far end of the island and I got accepted. I was so surprised. So. I started in doing like teen modeling and because I could dance, I could move so I could interpret. And there was a lot of little stories, you know, go-go boots and all those kind of things. And I could kind of get into the story. And it was Eileen Ford that saw my pictures and asked me to come to New York when I was very young. Amazing. And then next thing you know, you're on a hundred covers of magazines. Except it wasn't the next thing. It took years. <laughs> yeah. How old were you when, I was when about you 17. went to New York? Yeah. Well, I went with my mom because I was so young. Wow. And then I lived with Eileen Ford we, in her home. I decided I could have gone on to university, but I just, I said, no, I want to go into the world. That's what I want to do. Because all my siblings went to college and my father was, you know, a, a teacher at McGill. And that was the tradition of the family. So it was very unusual for one of the family you know, to just say, I want to go into the world. I want to see the world. I want to live. I want to see what's going on. So I kind of taught myself things, you know, taught myself languages and took a lot of time during my modeling, studying things, you know, that I chose. Did Eileen Ford take in a lot of other Yeah, she did some, but not a lot, not, and not as long as I was. Like sometimes models from other countries would come in and they would stay maybe two or three days for a job or something like that because she had a big townhouse. So there was lots of rooms, like it was like fourth, fifth, sixth floor type thing, you know. And so it was all like a little boarding house. She was very strict and it was good. And we were all scared of her, of course. She would say like <laughs> yeah. the most blunt things, you're fat. And so like do something or whatever to somebody. She would do stuff like that. And so it was strong, but it was really behind you to do whatever you wanted to do right. and how you wanted to do it. Because I remember it was a certain point where I had tested and tested. That's where you, you know, do photos with a photographer that's trying to get on the map and you're trying to get on the map. So you come together on your off days with clothes and you try to do what's called test pictures that will get you a job. And I did so much of that because nobody seemed to want me. In a certain way, it was wonderful because it gave me great humor when I was successful. That, oh, don't really know what is successful or what is beautiful or what is, they don't know. They just follow what other people do. And I think Eileen was very instrumental for me in placing me in front of opportunities because she looked at me because I'm smaller than most of the models. I don't didn't really look like the type of model that was, you know, it, at that time it was Swedish models, Danish models, and Texans. Tall, blonde, straight-haired girls. And I was little, dark, with curly hair. So I went in going to Europe, and she made that connection for me 
it was a photographer after much, much, much working in Italy and things like that. So I got really good at what I was doing. And I got really good at knowing how to communicate with the camera and understanding like, how could I cheat my lack of height in the camera? When I'm working with girls that were two feet taller than I, how did I do that? You know? Are you five I'm seven or just how under tall five seven? I always said I was five seven. I wasn't really five seven. <laughs> that feels <laughs> tall, <laughs> already tall. So these models yeah, they were, were tall, five, starting I mean, at five eight. Really tall. So I was really unusual to be that small. But I learned how you can step a teeny bit more forward. Sometimes I would kind stand on a taller. little box. I had a lot of humor about <laughs> it because it never went to my head when I was successful because it was many years later. I was more seasoned. I was older. I was able to handle it because it's a very hard thing to handle. When you take a young girl, 16, 17, from the Midwest or whatever, and then tell her she's the most incredible thing in the world for one year and then drop her, too hard to take. You don't have yeah. the seasoning, yeah. the wisdom to handle it. So I was much older when I was successful, finally successful. I was always working, but I was working at what they call the bread and butter, the catalog work. And then I would create a lot of humor about it. I'd say, here's pose number 23. <laughs> <laughs> I laugh because it was so boring. Yeah. And that was the only way I could entertain myself. But when you work with the great, great, greats, which I was so fortunate to do, it's so interesting because it has nothing to do with what you look like. It's what are you bringing to it? What is the communication you are bringing to it? And I think I was good at it because I sold a lot of product. And I really felt strongly about communicating with women off the page. And a lot of letters were written to me saying, I think you understand how I feel. I've grown up with you. You know, that kind of thing. So I felt it was more than what I looked like. Thank goodness. How has the industry changed from when you were in your heyday? We worked with rolls of film. Today it's digital. So the rolls of film make it very intimate. And you and the photographer, you kind of know when you've got the shot together. It's so connected. Today it's digital. And a lot of times you're not communicating with the photographer. Photographer is looking down at a machine. You don't have that connection like we had, you know. It's much bigger. It's much more global. The definitions of beauty have expanded, more inclusive of all kinds of beauty, of what is beautiful, what is not beautiful, what is trendy, what is popular, what is pertinent for fashion. Some, sometimes I don't understand it. Like, how is that wearable? That kind of stuff. It was much more classic. And I grew up cutting out pictures of women. And my mom was like that, you know, with a handbag on the hand. To me, that's what a woman was. Like, my mom had perfume in a bottle that had a like a pump. Yes. Right. You know, and yeah. just those yeah. movements are so feminine, you know? And she had the yeah. mascara that you spit yeah. on and you rubbed it onto a block. Oh. I mean, just even in that, that equipment, it's so much more vast. You know, you had very little, a woman had very little makeup. Today, it's just, it's endless. So there's good and bad in it, you know? I think there's still great talent. So that's always interesting, but it was much more intimate. There was a lot of artistic freedom for the top photographers to work without anyone over their shoulder and with a bigger budget. Solano, Penn, Hero, Avedon, Guy Bourdin, who discovered me, French photographer, all could work on their own geniuses. Did you ever stop modeling? Because you still kind yeah. of model now, right? Uh, I did. I <laughs> did because you somewhat age out. Okay, so there's that. 
But it was a great opportunity for me because when I did want to go back into it, because I had circumstances that happened in my life, I went on to acting. You're trying to find the next challenge and what you're interested in, what you want to do. I did many, many things from hosting CBS's Good Morning. I think it was one of the morning shows about health and well-being. I created Mm -hmm. a company about health and well-being, inner and outer beauty and stuff like that. But I think it was the turning point for me was when I tried to go back into the industry and they looked at me like horrified and said, you are so over the hill. You will never work in this industry again. And I was 35 years old. I went, I don't think so. I just went, I am so not over the hill. You know, (laughs) there's no way a woman is over the hill at that ever, ever over the hill. But told by an industry, a multi-billion dollar industry that you're finished. And I went, you're wrong. I haven't even started my life and I'm going to prove you wrong because I felt from the inside of the industry, I could change it, you know? So I went to the library, did lots of research on it. And I found that there was some 40 million baby boomers that people were just beginning to talk about the baby boomers then, you know, that did not consider themselves old, that probably never would. I felt like they're not representing. There was no imaging of a woman over 40, very, very little. There might've been an a Revlon ad of Lauren Hutton and a few things of Isabella Rossellini for Lancome, but that was it. That was totally it. I came back to New York and because of all the information I had and because of the research and because of also personal circumstances that happened, I became bolder because I think I was very shy. And this, I think circumstances can make it so that is a luxury to be shy. And I had to be bold about my choices and what I was doing. And I was on the forefront. I think it was Clairol that brought me on with a bunch of girls in a line of color. And I became their keynote speaker for this idea of if one is beautiful, one should be beautiful all their life. It should roll out. And we as women have to come together and say, yeah, what's beautiful about this age? That beauty of the journey of living. And it wasn't being addressed or talked about. And so it was new and it was exciting for people to hear this. So I did prove them wrong because Estee Lauder put me under contract. Because of all of that, they brought on somebody that our coloring was very similar. So the day that they said, we can't have two that look similar, do you know, L'Oreal brought me on board and I was 15 years with L'Oreal. And that was a very long and very exciting uh, relationship because it became like a family after 15 years. And I brought them many, many ideas of let's address women as whole people. During that time, I wrote two books. Both were bestsellers, including in China. So I went to China to figure out why it was, you know, things like that. And it gave me a great chance. I think I did 26 cities for one book and maybe 23 cities. It gave me a really great opportunity to talk with women. What's bothering you? Why don't you think you're beautiful? What is beautiful about you? You know, all of those questions. It was really, really wonderful for me. You redefined what beauty is, really. That's so helpful to people because people struggle with, oh, I'm not beautiful. How great that you could. Thank you for saying that. that. And you know, it strikes me deeply when I come across these women that don't feel they're beautiful for many reasons that have really nothing to do with themselves. If they know a couple of things of what to do and how to think. So I think those have to go together. I had another company, Talbots, I'm sure you know that, that sent me all over the country addressing women. And 
that was very powerful because I would go into the store. They would announce that I was going to be there. I would pull things I thought were fabulous because they were doing some fabulous things. You just had to know how to wear it. Then the women would come and then women would come up to me and say, can't do anything for me like this. And I like a challenge. And I went, why is that? He said, she said, because I'm not beautiful like that, you know? I'm going, whoa, like that's a solid, strong statement to make about yourself, you know? So I said, well, let's, what's your lifestyle? I asked a few questions and then I put stuff on and stood with her, this woman, I remember, but it happened a few times in front of the mirror with tears running down. She looked at me and she said, I am beautiful. And it's like you can access yourself where you truly live from the outside you know, as well as from the inside out and the outside in. That's why in the, my second book, I named it The Five Principles of Ageless Living. And the first principle is look your best because you can access yourself through changing your hair or hair color or wearing something. Or, you know, I spoke with doctors who said their patients, they noticed if they just washed their hair that they heal faster. They put lipstick on. They didn't ask for their pain medicine as often. This really has a powerful effect and a lot less superficial than one might think. I'm not talking about being obsessed, you know, with just the outside. But making exactly. a small Exactly. You have to mix it. What are the other four yes, principles, if I you don't remember mind? remember them all now. <laughs> Look, discover your wisdom oh, yeah. because your wisdom is what you gain. That is the beauty of what you gain with time. What you would do at 20, you would not do at 40, 50, you know, every year you change. Uh, Discover your wisdom, honor your body. You have one body. It's a vehicle. It's a car, you know, and some people get blessed with some kind of body, but you still have a vehicle and that's the one that can move you around and hug people. And it's extremely important to honor, honor your body through eating well, sleeping well, thinking right thoughts, exercising. Those are just basics, but Without a body that's in shape, without a body that can do your bidding, so to speak, then the right. spirit, where who you truly are, is uh, restricted because people that have uh, disabilities prove us wrong in that area because they go beyond the restrictions. You know, so there's that's another conversation yes. which is completely inspiring. And you talk about that we are spiritual beings having I an do, human I experience, I, I, I right? I firmly believe that. And that these bodies are so important for that spirit to be able to experience what that spirit or soul needs to experience. Exactly. Lifetime, because right? we are here to learn. That's why we're here. We're here to learn, to share, and share our knowledge in a kind way, and to love and be loved. I think that's why we're here, just to love and be loved. All boils down to love. How much are you receiving love? How much are you giving yes. love, you know? And you can change somebody's it's day true. just by smiling at them. You don't have to be like me and go off to Africa, you know? You can just smile at, especially somebody that's serving the public, because they probably get battered, do you know? A smile can, I know it can change my day. Stay connected. Oh, that's stay connected great, yeah, because, stay connected. Because I think when you get depressed, the first thing you do is disconnect, Right. And it's also one of the first things right. that help you make a connection in whatever way you feel reassured, right, about yourself and humanity. We right. have to remember that we are here for reasons, some of them beyond our understanding, but that's where faith comes in. We are spiritual beings, like I said, having an experience, sometimes not always pleasant, 
So how do we keep our faith that we're on the right track and that we're useful and that we're pertinent? How do we do that? A lot of it is self-talk, the self-talk we do, you know, just to watch that self-talk. And um, my daughter does a beautiful thing where for one year she kept a gratitude journal. And I do speak about that in my book, Five Principles of Ageless Living. Say at night at least three things you're grateful for. But she kept 10 things every night she would write down. She'd put the book in her mattress and with a pencil and write 10 things that, that happened that day that made her grateful. A gratitude list enhances your gratefulness and it is a key to happiness. Yeah, and it helps you shift and remember yes. the good things because it's easy to go down that rabbit hole of all the things. Yes, that and are sometimes wrong. it's just like the weather. Sometimes you just feel bad. Yes. And we know with weather, if it rains, like we had a huge thunderstorm here last night. Today it's sunny. Do you know, that's the way it goes. I talk to myself if I have those moments going, wow, okay, you're experiencing this. It doesn't feel good. It'll pass. Do you know, this too shall pass. I think you have to do that self-talk and then just say, what is the key that could shift? It's usually the simplest is take a walk or exercise or be in nature. Or as you said, or connect. You call know? a friend. Exactly. Call a friend. I love this thing, keep good company. Do yes. We have to, especially in these times, watch who we're spending time with and what are they saying to us? Because that might not be conducive for your health and your well-being, you know, your mental health. So in your second act, as Tricia called it this morning, she said, we really want to talk about your second act, which is when you, well, what is your second act? You started <laughs> this amazing organization called Women One. So tell us about it that. It's like a third act or a fourth act. I know, I know it does. And it's like, it's all kind of blending. Your I acts think are it's blending. it's important <laughs> to keep interested. And I think it's important for people, but especially for women, not to feel that it's over. It's over because of a number. It's over because you got divorced. It's over because somebody left you. It's never over. You know, I lost my husband early on. That was part of what I was saying that, you know, I had a personal shift that changed what I call changed my DNA. These things that happen that you see the big transformations that happen in your life when you get through and go through those things, those are the big opportunities that you have. And for me, I had done I think what I wanted to do in that world, the fashion world, and I really wanted to work with women because I really enjoyed working with women, changing their mind about themselves, you know, personally for the positive. I enjoyed it. So I said, I would like to work with women in much more extreme situations. And I proposed to UNICEF to work with them. And at first, you know, they said, well, we need the magazines to accept our stories. So I sifted through all the different stories, would pick out the stories that really connected with me. And then I would go to the editors of the magazines. At that time, magazines were really powerful and say, look, I think we should do a story on this, blah, blah, blah. I was just one step short of convincing them. They were very interested, but I didn't go myself. So I went back to UNICEF and I said, you know what? I think what the problem is is I need to go myself so that it's firsthand, not secondhand, the story. So I became a UNICEF ambassador and went all over with them. I went to Darfur. I went to Angola. I was in many, many countries in Africa and also in South America. I learned a lot from them, an extraordinary organization. And it was just, I went with other organizations too to the Congo, and that was more dangerous 
because we were held up by gunpoint. It didn't have the protection, the level of protection that UNICEF has. You know, UNICEF, you have to go through grueling tests for some of the areas like Darfur to go through to make sure it's safe. It can be a very unsafe. And some of the places are, are really not what we're used to, can be very dirty and you know, it's not for everybody. And another organization I went to, I saw babies strapped to their back, to mother's backs, uh, uh, mothers that had walked all night for this rural clinic. And at that rural clinic we were visiting, the doctor pulled me aside and said, could you help us? We need two microscopes. I thought, that's pretty easy, you know, so I could ask for that. And what happened was the organization that I did travel with at that time said it's too small for us. You know, we, we would love to help, but that's too small. We just do much bigger things. And it just a light bulb went off and I thought, oh, it's not too small for these women that walk all night. So there's, there's room for me to organize or start or found an organization that does smaller things like that, that can work with the larger organizations. And Women One was born that way. And I veered of all the different problems, because there's a lot of them, I veered towards education because it's a game changer. If somebody is educated, a lot of changes happen. And I focused on women and girls because at 12 and 13 is where you lose a girl. She'll either be sold off, married off, or brought back into the family. So I felt if we could keep them in school, then for every year they're in school, incredible positive results happen. Occurrences of violence go down. She will have less children and they will be healthier because of her education. And they will probably be educated themselves. So what I felt, like people said, why do you want to go all the way to Africa or places like that? Why don't you help people at home? But I think what I have to say about that is we need, as the world is getting smaller, we need pockets of security, pillars of calm, and I guess the best word is security all over the world and as placements so that that has influence in that area to keep us safe as well because the world is getting smaller and we're at the receiving end of some of the unrest that comes from other countries. So I can do this part, you know, which is making sure certain areas are well-educated and peaceful. That makes a lot of sense. Yes. Women One is now full on and going and you're active, very active with it. And we did read, and as you just said, that a drop in the bucket is a drop in the bucket is what you were saying. And that's what you talk about, right? That your mission is how can we just change through education, even if it's not a gazillion women, but actually it's growing, right? I mean, you actually are touching We really a lot are. Of and we work on hard to reach young girls. I just got back from Africa, which is, I hadn't been since before COVID because we couldn't travel much. You know, some of the children have started with us when they're three and four years old. And we have partners on the ground in Nanyuki, Kenya, primarily focused on Kenya, but We've functioned in six countries, including with Syrian refugees in Azraq and the other um, refugee camps in um, Jordan and Turkey. So I'm seeing these children now, especially this young girl, Jackie, who we knew when she was 10. I think she came in at eight years old. And I've known her since she was 10. She's now 19. I got some of the beauty companies. This is another thing from that area of my life. I kind of pulled them in and convince them or inspire them to do what they can do to make a difference. And LVMH, uh, the luxury company, did a six-month program 
like a mentoring program for my girls. Because of that program and the support they got from the different organizations, uh, which has been incredibly helpful to have that financial support as well, she dared to apply for a MasterCard scholarship. Didn't tell anybody, but because of that mentorship, she got much more courage and she won it. And so here, MasterCard Foundation was one of our sponsors, so probably sponsored her when she was 10. And now she won the leadership scholarship in Rwanda, and she's just there two weeks now. So we're keeping in touch to see how it's going. It's just a beautiful story. And you just see how brilliant these kids are. We do take care of the boys as well. So I just want you to know, it's not just exclusively girls, but I primarily focus on girls because I'm a girl. (laughs) You know, if the family has money, usually it'll be spent on a boy and not a girl. Even though the mamas in Kenya tell me that with a girl child, so much changes when they're educated compared to a boy child because they take care of the community. What has been your favorite program that you've worked over the years? I loved, we did a partnership with Duke University taking their top students who mentored for six months Syrian refugees in Zatari, which is the second largest refugee camp in the world. And it was a media and leadership workshop. And it was brilliant because we gave the girls cameras, inexpensive cameras. We asked them to film and photograph what they couldn't speak about. Now they had lost everything. So suddenly it put them into a position of power, of control. And everything was out of their control. They were in control. And they could choose to make these two-minute, five-minute films about their viewpoint. Like one girl decided to make a film on if a child in the camp has lost everything, how did they play? So it was all the different ways they played. Like one boy took a knot in a rope and was like hitting water. Another took a plastic bag and was flying it like a kite. It was, she said, there's a lot of like hand games that go on now. Another one, she said she noticed her sister was leaning back against the wall and was like bicycling her feet. She didn't have a bicycle, but she remembered the movement of a bicycle, you know? So all that was filmed and there were some really moving films and they won. We put them in a lot of different, you know, award systems and they won a lot of awards, those films, including Sundance. So what was was great about that is that it gave them power. It made them see their own ability. And also with their father and their brothers, suddenly were very impressed Mm, with them. Like, how could you do that? How do you know how to do that? So suddenly their power play changed within their family because of that new ability. So that was another positive side effect that happened. So we're really proud about that. But I love what we're doing in Kenya. I got David Ajay, the wonderful architect David Ajay, to visit it, and he felt that the world should see what we're doing, and he pro bono designed the campus, and that's what we're doing now, raising money for the campus. We want to have like an echo hotel there where they can learn hospitality so the students can learn the hospitality while tourists, like someone like yourself, if you wanted to volunteer and do tourism, you can go on a safari because it's very beautiful at the base of Mount Kenya. It's very beautiful there. But at the same time, you could give back. And so that's what we're hoping to do. So that's in the future. And then a quick story, if I may. I saw the original boy, Alfred, that started this whole story of the school that's there now. And our partner, Matt, it's called uh, the Shamama Project, I think means stand up. We have kids, uh, bandons, a lot of them bandons, 
living on the street. Like Jackie was living on the street, eight years old, beaten up, living on the street. And then we found her. Now she has the scholarship to go. So you can see it's opportunity wow. they're missing. Yeah. It's not intellectual property. It's opportunity. So Alfred was playing football, soccer football with Matt. And Matt, you know, after a few days said, what can I do for you? And he said, I want to go to school. So he said, okay. So he put him in school. He became first in his class. He came to Matt and he said, look, I am not the smartest boy on the street. There are so many boys smarter than me. You gave me the opportunity. Can you give them the opportunity? And Matt went, he said, let me think about it. He said, okay, go think about it. A week later, he came back. He said, did you think about it? Matt was saying to me, that's all I thought about. Three boys. I'll take three <laughs> boys, you know? And so the boy said, okay. Alfred said, okay. Came back with 10 boys. So oh. Matt said, okay, okay. He said, okay, I'll help. I'll mentor and you mentor them to get them up to speed. All 10 boys made top in their class. Alfred wow. made top in the county. Alfred went on to university wow. studying agriculture, which he's interested in, worked with a big company, and the company wanted to take him on because he was so good. And he said, I want to go back to Nanyuki, where we are. I want to go back there and work there. So Matt gave him a plot of land. He's raising the vegetables and everything for the kids so that they have the food. And it's so successfully expanded it. Now he has an idea. He goes to Matt and he says, those boys we missed that are now living on the street that didn't get into school. They're in their 20s. I want to mentor them in agriculture. So now we're rescuing another wow. wave of kids that would have been bypassed. That yeah, is very really cool. cool. It was a beautiful, you asked me about programs. It was a beautiful, unintentional benefit that happened because of helping that one boy, you know? I mean, we helped individually several hundred, but the impact in the communities is over 5,000. Wow. So your work is so inspiring. You are so inspiring. Who's inspired you? Oh, my mom inspired me because she came from nothing and put a family together with nothing. And she passed now, so she did inspire me. My daughter is one of my biggest inspirations because my daughter walks the walk. She's been through a lot. She's been through a lot of her own difficulties that she walks through to the other side. So it strengthened her. It made her impossible to sway off of that path. Do you know what I mean? Now I know. I trust her opinion. She's deep, wise, and loving. A great mother. She's the mother to four children, which is a lot. Two marriages, four <laughs> children. It's a lot. So she's raised two. Now she's raising two more. Her commitment is of the highest, like, you know, the highest order. You know, her commitment is to her spirit. That's her commitment. Yeah. And then her commitment is to helping in the best way she can, anyone that comes across her past, spiritually, mentally. So her time is devoted to that, at her family. So her. And then I come across wonderful, wonderful people like who we spoke about before. Princess Rima, to me, is an extraordinary woman because, first of all, she's the first Saudi ambassador to the United States. Her father was ambassador to, Prince Bandar was ambassador to the United States, but she's the first woman ambassador. Now there are other female ambassadors from Saudi, but she was the first one. And what I love about her is that she is grounded in her truths and beliefs, but she retained a gentleness and a femininity. She retained her feminineness. What I understand is the crown prince calls her often to be there because I would think, you know, I don't know, I would think that presence, that female presence is needed within that very male flow that happens, you know, because I've seen her in action and she just is the real deal. She inspires me a lot. I've spent some time with her. I like her ideas about health and well-being and women. 
how she's so pro-women. And she says, I'm not sporty, but I'm really pro-sports. Yes. But I'm not sporty. Don't ask me to be sporty. And she's just someone I like spending time with because her brain is going on the global scene. And I like that too, because if I can unite through people I meet and reunite players that can support and help each other, like I just have this wonderful idea I'm really hoping to put together by meetings that I met with different people that will benefit many, many people. And that's what you want to do. I like that my Women One is small enough that I know the names of the students. And I have like in front of me, all of their profiles. I study them. I learn them so that when they're mentioned to me, I know, well, can we help this person? I have two of my girls that said, could you please be my mom? Now one of them has such chutzpah that she said, I'm going to set up a regular Zoom call once a week that you and I speak as you are my mom now. <laughs> oh, I have those to oh. deal with too. So I like that. Not deal yeah. with. I don't mean it that way. Manage. But right, I right, also right. love the idea of if I know the president of this company, like Fontainebleau, I know Fontainebleau with, its, you know, the president. If I know the president of this, if I know, what if I could unite them and we could do something together that will be for good? That's exciting to me too. That's what I'm hoping to be able to do. You are clearly a force. Wow. <laughs> you were asking about inspiration too. It's it's the people that go on at all odds that inspire me. They might not have the spotlight on them. They might not be on the cover of a magazine. So they're unsung heroes or heroines. They inspire me because when you meditate or when you go in, you can connect to those people and really pray for them to keep going, you know, and keep going on because we're not going to know mm -hmm. all of them. That is not their karma, so to speak, to be on the forefront. If one is on the forefront, we have to hold the light for them as well. And I think that's a lot of those of us, which I think both of you are that and many of your listeners might be, we are called upon also, if we have advantages, to hold the light for those people that do not to hold the light for what's happening in Morocco right now, things like that. And, you know, my school, you know, these children, they're not all going to get the chance to go to university. So I'm trying to come up with ideas that can give them a means to support themselves and then their families and the community. Yes. And anything your listeners can think of or to do, please go on my website, which is www.womenone, that's O-N-E-1, Dot org And just either volunteer or if they can donate, we run a very lean ship and we really try to make every dollar count for our kids so that they do get these wonderful opportunities. That's great. Incredible. Well, Dale, thank you for being a light in the world yes, and for coming you. on our podcast. It's just been an honor for Trisha and I to have I'm you. I'm so grateful that you thought of me and you invited me. And I'm grateful to your listeners for listening through all my wonderful stories and crazy stories and pieces of my life. So thank you so much for all of you for having me on. Thank you. Thank you for joining us on Health Gig. We loved having you with us. We hope you'll tune in again next week. In the meantime, be sure to like and subscribe to this podcast and follow us on healthgigpod.com. I'm Trisha. And I'm Doral. Be well. Have you ever done the Enneagram personality test? What's great about it is that it tells you how you are when you are stressed and also when you are thriving. Conscious Leadership Group has worked with well over a thousand leaders across all industries, including CEOs and top leaders of Fortune 200 companies, and they are looking forward to working with all of us at Gasparilla this year 
to help you with your testing and also to walk you through how to discover the secret of your personality and its dynamics with the ones you love. Call 877-764-1420 or visit the Gasparilla Inn website at the-gasparilla-inn.com to register for this year's November experience.